Okay, hey, welcome to another episode of Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast, and I'm your host, Paul Gillette. It's a beautiful day here in the in the desert, and on the line with me today is Randy Hamill. Randy is with True Line Trains, which uh, if you're not familiar with it, and I've already confessed to Randy that I am not that familiar with True Line, but it, it's a Canadian company. Uh, so he's up there in Fast Tracks territory with uh, Tim Warris and those people, but in a different part of the hobby. So, Randy, welcome to the show. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. How did you get involved with True Line? Uh, were you a modeler? What? Give us a little background here. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a modeler. I'm actually a retread. Uh, I had a, a layout when I was a kid up until... Uh, I graduated high school, and then everything went in the attic, and it didn't come out until about 18 years after that, uh, which was about, oh, six years ago or something like that. I started getting back into to modeling, and in the process of doing that, um, I modeled New Haven Railroad, and so I had started to put together a website of the research I was doing, and uh, as well as the, the modeling that I'm I'm undergoing to do the layout. And it was uh, through a mutual friend who knew about my website and all, found out that TrueLine was looking for somebody to uh, redo their website. I'm not really a web designer. You know, I, I kind of feel I have a, a fairly good sense for uh, a simple and straightforward website. I'm not somebody who likes a lot of extra gimmicks and stuff. I just want to get the information out there. Um, but that was how I got hooked up with the company. Uh, it was through a mutual friend to start doing a website, which I started doing about a year ago. Uh, and then this year just became more involved in the company as a whole. Uh, as you were saying, it's a company that a lot of people are not as familiar with in the United States. So that's kind of my role here is to try and build the brand back up in the United States. I'm down in Connecticut, so I'm kind of like the U.S. arm, I guess, for lack of a better description at this point. And so it's it's been a lot of fun. It's interesting. I'm not a, a long-term uh, industry specialist, although I do know a number of people in the industry who've been a huge help in uh, you know trying to figure out how to do this, basically. Okay. And what is your website on your modeling of the New Haven? What's that web address? Uh, the website that I built there is newbritainstation.com. Uh, I'm actually modeling a single city on the New Haven Railroad, New Britain, Connecticut. Uh, presumably sometime between 46 and 54, the layout itself is good for that. There was a lot of change. It really is the transition era. You basically go from all steam uh, in the early years of that, 46, 47, to by the time you get to uh, 54, it's all Bud RDC cars for the passenger trains and all RS3s for pretty much everything else and some FA1s, FA2s. So. It's it's a really interesting era to model from that standpoint, um, but my primary focus right now ends up on 1947, mostly because of a bunch of my buddies who who talked me into moving back to uh, the steam era, basically. Um, so the, the website is something that I've spent a lot of time putting research. There's not a ton on the layout yet, although I just added some construction photos in a separate section because I didn't really have anything separate from the blog. Um, and then as I go on, I intend to put up more finished photos of what the layout looks like uh, alongside prototype photos and so on. Okay. Now, that part of uh, – you mentioned you mentioned diesel, so that was outside of the area – 
of the New Haven Electric uh, District? Yes, uh, this is on what was known as the Highland Line. Uh, runs uh, the, the area that I'm modeling in New Britain is between Waterbury and Hartford, Connecticut. So it's kind of uh, in the middle of Connecticut, running east to west. And it's an interesting city because there's there's actually two lines that come into New Britain. One is the the Highland Line, which is the one that runs through to Hartford. Now, the other is a short two-mile branch uh, called the Berlin Line. There's a Y down off the Springfield Main Line uh, that comes up to New Britain as well, and that's the track that's actually still in place and still in use today. Uh, but both both ends, the, the Highland Line running east as well as this Berlin Line, connect to the Springfield Line uh, in the Hartford area. Um, but be, within the city limits, almost the entire city is within yard limits, there's three small yards, and there were two locally assigned switchers in this era, along with eight through freight uh, daily and eight passengers daily and uh, also a local freight. So there's quite a bit of activity that all kind of converges in this one location. Now, when I, you know, just looking on your website and watching that, so you're building a helix. Boy, you are adventuresome yeah actually even more so than than i intended to be the room is about 20 by 10 feet and because i've got all these through freights i needed to have staging and the only way i was really going to be able to fit it in the room was the helix but i also wanted to avoid duck unders or lift outs or something of that nature so in in the end i have two helixes one at either end of the layout they both go down into staging so it, it forms a continuous loop uh, through staging, but yeah, it, it did uh, require some some interesting construction there because there's not a lot of space, uh, which means that you've got a smaller radius helix. The outside uh, track is 28 inches. I intended to double track it until I figured out how much track that would eat up. Um, but it's, so it's about a 28-inch radius uh, on each of the helixes, and so the decks are pretty close together. So I ended up constructing the decks out of masonite to keep them as thin as possible. Um, and I had a lot of help from a, a bunch of friends trying to get these things put together and, and figure out how to uh, uh, design and build them. But, uh, yeah, that's that's been an interesting challenge because, you know, like all of us, space is sometimes a premium and you, know, you figure out how to work with it, basically. Okay, so they were scratch built. You didn't buy a Helix kit. You just made it yourself. I just made it myself. The uh, the Helix kits were were not cheap, um, although, you know, like everything, it, it's something that you certainly could uh, justify depending on what your needs are. Um, in this case, my initial plan was to build them more or less as octagons because I wasn't somebody who had the tools or was skilled to do the nice graceful curves that you see people doing. Uh, but a, a regular miter saw cuts the, I think it's a 22 and a half degree um, angle, which is what you need to connect all the pieces together. And all the other surfaces were, you know, just straight, so it forms an octagon. And I've since uh, shaved off a few of the corners to make it a little more elbow friendly, particularly between the two helixes. Uh, but yeah, it was it, it's a relatively straightforward thing to get the right pieces once you figure out the dimensions. But uh, it, it, it was a bit of a challenge, and fortunately, I have a friend, uh, Dick, who is uh, an architect, and he managed to, to kind of, well, actually, he just ran with it, basically. He uh, he figured out the, the specific calculations and all, 
and had access to a bandsaw to do the cutting for me. So uh, he he cut all the pieces out and then brought them over here, and he and a couple other buddies and I started trying to figure out how to put them together. I noticed on there you're using engage uh, cork. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was a clearance necessity. Again, I wanted something on the helixes to provide a little bit of uh, sound deadening within the helixes, and the cork is about half the height of HO scale roadbed. Uh, and then the other thing I found is that if you install it essentially upside down so that the widest portion of the bevel is on the top of it, it's pretty much exactly the same width of a standard piece of HO scale track uh, to the end of the ties. So I used the, in the helix, I used the cork as sort of my template for bending the uh, flex track. Put the cork down first and then, you know, bend the track around the uh, the cork to make it fit. And then once I got up onto the main layout, uh, because it's a city layout, uh, it's pre- predominantly flat. Uh, it was easy to just continue with that than do a transition to HO scale road bed. Is it code 83, code 70? What size track? Uh, code 70, biker engineering. And if you read on, I, I won't go into all the the gory details, but I had originally intended to hand lay the tracks uh, using a combination of parts from Proto 87 stores as well as the Central Valley Model Works uh, tie strips, and I built one yard doing that, and the, the the story behind that was that when I got back in the hobby, you know, there's things that just, for whatever reason, they, they you know, stick out to you, and 90% of the people don't notice the same things you do, and they have their own little pet peeves, but... Uh, one of the issues I always thought, you know, was just didn't look good was the throw bars on a turnout. So I was uh, trying to find a way to do that, which is part of, part of what led me to doing the the, uh, the hand laid approach for these original ones. And I used uh, uh, Z scale uh, PC board ties that I got from Fast Tracks to solder on and use as the throw bars. The ironic thing is, is that as I got into this. Uh, the big issue I ran into was figuring out how I wanted to actuate these. And the main approaches I was using didn't they, – they tested very well, but once I started building the layout, um, my skills are not such that I was as precise as needed to make it function reliably uh, across a layout of 50 or 60 turnouts. So in that time period, uh, I had, for the first time, seen the uh, microengineering turnouts. Uh, in addition to that, um, Mike Rose and his buddy Jim Lincoln had come by after the uh, New England Proto Meet. I'm about half mile from the New England Proto Meet site here in Collinsville, Connecticut. So they came over to check it out, and I showed them what I was doing. And Jim is phenomenal at hand-laying track, and he took it and ran with it. So on that uh, new section of Mike's layout, he's got all these turnouts with the Z-scale throw bars, and they figured out how to uh, how to actuate it. Uh, but they did it from the beginning, and their benchwork was set up to use that system, and mine wasn't. So as it turns out, I've switched almost entirely to the microengineering turnouts, and, and they're running with the uh, the other approach. So it's kind of funny, but you, you find your what works for you, basically. And I, I like experimenting with a lot of things, but when they were here, I we were talking about it, and I realized that I had uh, started working on that project probably about four years ago. There's a long thread on uh, Joe Fugate's website, the Siskiyou Railfan site, uh, a- about 
building the Central Valley turnouts, and, and Joe and I were bouncing a lot of ideas, and they, it, this was among them that uh, we were working on at that point. And, and when I went to find that information for Jim, I'm like, wow, I started this four years ago, and I'm still trying to start laying track on this. And it, it just, you know, I want to get this thing up and operating. So it, it was a good time to, to make the switch. No pun intended. Yeah. Between Joe's skills, and you mentioned Mike Rose, I've never met mm-hmm. Mike, but I've, I've spoken with him. So those two guys there have a lot of knowledge. Oh, absolutely. Amazing skills and knowledge and you know, uh, certainly well beyond. Well, pretty much all of my buddies have quite a bit more modeling skills than I do, and and you know, people I've met like Mike and Jim and and Joe, you know, have a, have a lot more history and and time in the hobby than I do. So that makes a difference. Well, I see too, and I I find this really interesting. Looks like you're going to have some large industry. I'm looking at a photo mock-up. You've got. The Landers, Frary, and Clark. Mm-hmm. Is that going to be a building? Yep. Uh, what uh, Dick and I are working on, uh, my friend Dick, the architect, helping me mock up how we might do this. Um, and that particular uh, industry pretty much dominated the, the New Britain yard scene across the tracks from it is where the, the station is and all. And so it's right in the center of town. And that's also the portion of the layout that's the closest to scale. Um, between the two major roads, Main Street and Elm Street, it's probably about 70% to scale. So that particular building, the mock-up, the initial mock-up is about four feet long. Uh, so it's it's a good building, good-sized building, and lots and lots of windows, which is why we're trying to figure out a, a uh, an easier and more economical way to do it. Uh, because from that point and on the west side of town, it's pretty much nothing but large industries. Uh, the American Hardware Corporation was there with several divisions, Russell and Irwin and Corbin Screw. Uh, there was another company called Fafner Bearings, which was a, a big company providing bearings, including for uh, the passenger cars on the New Haven Railroad. Uh, and then the, the biggest one in town, and which still has a, a sizable presence, is Stanley Works. Uh, the Stanley Company is, is headquartered in, and uh, started in New Britain. And I'll only have a very small portion of the area that they cover uh, because I just don't have the space for it. But, yeah, it's it's very interesting because you've got this uh, this particular industry. I think, if I remember, New Britain in this time period supplied the world with like 30% of their hardware. Okay. So have you considered – now, that going back to that big four-foot-long building, is that going to be a, a low-relief building, just come out from the backdrop maybe a couple inches? Yeah, that one will have to be. Because that deck right there is, I think, 32 inches wide already. Uh, and I actually don't even have the space initially to put the uh, New Britain station. And there was also a large building next to the station called the Arcade. It was like a little sort of shopping strip mall that faced the railroad tracks. There wasn't a road in front of it there. But operationally, they, they would be in the way to be reaching over a, a two-story building to try and access the main yard and all. So uh, the way I've designed it is I'll be able to do a module that will kind of hook in fr- onto the front of the layout. And when I get around to building those, I'll put them up there when I want to take photographs and so on uh, and then take them off when we're doing the operations. And after I've done my round of photos, there's a good chance I'll probably uh, put them on display at the New Britain Library because they have a nice display case for uh, for things there and it would make a nice display. 
but the factory itself is going to be at most about an inch deep at that point, although uh, Dick and some of the other guys have convinced me that I ought to punch into the wall so I can run the track that goes into it actually into the factory. So I, I will probably end up doing that. Uh, so at least you can run some cars back there, but uh, not a room for much more than that. Okay. Now, is the building still in existence, or is it long gone? Uh, that is long gone. Actually, New Britain uh, did a urban renewal right after the period I'm modeling, and then in the uh, probably in the mid '60s, I think they put in a, a highway that that goes right through the center of town and destroys pretty much all of the buildings that are in the main section of the layout uh, until you get to Stanley Works. A lot of those buildings are still there. Uh, but most of these other ones, it, even the land that they were on is gone. It's now a big trench with the highway going underneath it. The guy that has done the cover article in this month's uh, MRH, uh, Mike Confluent, mm -hmm. I mean, to me, he's a very accomplished at using photo, mm -hmm. even with cutouts where he can park half of a boxcar or something to give you that illusion of, of depth. Yep. Maybe something like that would work, but boy, that's an impressive looking building. Yeah, yeah, we're used to, uh, we're looking at probably doing some sort of uh, photo based option. Uh, one of the things that uh, we do with a, a few of the guys around here, and we just recently went up, is operate up on the, the Rensselaer layout, the uh, NEB and W layout at, up at RPI. And John Neerick has a number of buildings in the scene of Troy that have uh, that he he built using photographs for the brickwork and everything. Uh, his technique is pretty interesting because the buildings are actually built out of styrene brick, and then I think he photographs or or works in Photoshop to build the building he wants, and then prints it out on decal paper, which he then decals over the brick structure itself. And it's pretty amazing. And I'm not entirely sure necessary for the brickwork itself. I mean, the relief is so low. I'm not sure you actually need the texture for the brick, but the basic technique of building up layers of whatever material with a, a photograph as the actual scenery element uh, is, is pretty fascinating. And um, I know in Europe they do a lot more work with paper buildings and all, and they weather them and, and everything once they're on the layout too. So that's we just started looking into that, but I think it's it's a good option because it'll be a little less expensive. Um, and then another technique I've seen, and I think it might have been in a, a rail model journal, uh, was somebody who, for their windows, they cut out the windows, but instead of getting all of the Tishy or Grant line windows, um, they printed the mullions on transparency paper so that they could just put that in place, and so it gives you the clear glazing uh, as well as the window mullions all in one piece and, and a very economical approach. Yeah, that would be very good. And I guess, you know, everything goes around and comes around. Mm -hmm. 50s, my first Lionel set, the buildings were just printed out of cardstock, yep. and, but they didn't even have accurate photos. I mean, they were good enough for a five-year-old. Sure. But, uh, uh, yeah, now we've taken that up to a science level. Well, that's incredible. Now, so you've been working at uh, your layout already for four years? Yeah, something around that. But now you're finally getting wooden screws involved. Mm -hmm. uh, you're looking at your construction photos. You've already got a lot of 
road bed down. I'm seeing some track work and stuff. So now you're really making progress. Yeah, we've done a test operating session on the bulk of the layout. I haven't gotten the west side of town built yet, um, but the main portion of the layout is is, is usable, uh, and that's done well. The actual construction, I think, started about a year, year and a half ago. I've actually built two other layouts in this, you know, the six years I've been back in, I started two other layouts in the space until I settled on what I was going to do here um, as I slowly got more space and did more research, basically, uh, and found something that was more appropriate operationally. Uh, and I'm hoping to finish laying the, the track work before the proto-meet in June. This will be on the layout tours uh, at the New England proto-meet in Collinsville. Iteration of my uh, railroad, I started hand-laying track. I'd never done it before, mm -hmm. so... But I invested heavily in Mr. Warris's, uh templates and stuff yep. up there in uh, tracks. And my wife works out of town, so when she'll come into town, she'll go. She'll walk out to the layout and go, "Have you gotten anything done?" And I said, "Yeah." I said, "Here's another 60 feet of track that's been put in place." Yep. And she doesn't. I said, "I had no idea it took this long." You know, that's what I did this morning for uh, our. Uh, call mm -hmm. was making straight sticks for a staging yard and it's just yeah you're talking about 20 25 minutes just to lay them out solder them then clean all the solder joints do the circuit testing and then then you still got to put ties on yep so it's just time intensive yep. and i considered going the full route with the proto 87 tie plates and everything when i started doing this and then you realize how much time it takes and and kind of what your priorities are and I, you know since this is really my first, you know, really solid layout, basically, and, and my real goal is operating it, you know, with the, the group of guys, I decided that I could sacrifice the track a little bit for the sake of getting it going, and then I'll probably come back and change things as I usually do afterwards. So, Well, and you can go, because who is it? Uh, Central Valley and stuff make all the, the tie plates, the fish plates and all yep. that. That you can, I mean, certainly you can do that in key scenes that are up close that people see. Yep. And then the faraway stuff where it's never going to be seen, I guess that's, what was it, the guy's name uh, in Ohio that had the... Oh, the V&O, yep. Yes, that had the good enough approach, yep. which I think it makes practical sense. Yes, oh, absolutely. You know, you gotta you got to pick and choose what's what's going to make the most difference, basically. Yeah, one of the guys at the, uh, the layout shop, because I had been upgrading cars and he goes well look here's my approach he said if i've got three locomotives on the front end that are very finitely detailed and weathered and he said if i've got 20 cars following he said i detail the the first five the last five in the caboose mm -hmm. he said people don't see what's in between yep so he said those i'm not necessarily worried about etched metal running boards fine scale grab irons he said they'll be weathered and everything he said, but and i went you know that's a good approach people focus on the beginning and the end of uh, a train yeah, absolutely and you know fortunately i got back into this late enough that uh, the options out there for very detailed ready to run cars are, are are great i mean there's there's so many choices that i don't i didn't have to go through the the uh, you know the Atherton Blue Box kit bashes and all that. They're they're largely available either ready to run or as resin kits and so on. And so uh, the bulk of the rolling stock, I think I, I might have. I think I have one Bowser car right now that I haven't shaved off grabs on. But for the most part, I've been focusing on getting the things that I won't have to do significant changes to. 
and down the line I'll get to that once I've got an operating layout. Well, you know, I took, because I had so many of them, uh, blue box cars yeah. from the uh, the 80s, and so I went to Plano Industries because they have an extensive line of, you know, etched metal uh, uh, running boards. So I bought, bought those. I went to Detail Associates. They had real nice end ladders for the center flow and yada, 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 did all this stuff, then painted, decaled, and it, so I added up the parts. I had another $15 worth of parts and who knows how many hours per car in doing all exactly. this. And I put it out there against a highly detailed car and I'm going, you know, I think I'll buy these from now on. This is, this is maddening to do all this yep. work. Yep. Well, you pick and choose. That's right. You, it's fun to do, but at the end of the day, I go, I think I'll choose to buy these yeah, things. I mean, I'm one of those that's really, I love building kits. And I love building the models, but you know, as you know, in the industry today, it's it's moved a lot towards ready to run. And when I got back in the hobby, I had a lot of people saying that you know people don't build kits anymore; they don't build models. And and I, while I understand where they're coming from, I think that uh, Joe Fugate in one of his editorials, uh, I think it was last year sometime, really hit the nail on the head when he said that you know the the approach has shifted to not focusing on modeling specific cars or locomotives, although that's still done, but to, you're building a layout. You're modeling the entire location. Uh, and so the amount of effort you put into a single part of that layout, whether it be a, a freight car or the track work or, you know, whatever, you know, will vary from person to person. Uh, but, you know, the, the layout itself is takes a lot of modeling effort and a lot of uh, modeling time and skill. And so it's it's really interesting. And uh, I also think if you look at the uh, the structures and stuff, the the craftsman structure kind of group out there, and all the there's really a lot of people putting a lot of effort into the the scenery and the structure building as opposed to the freight cars. Because in the industry, it's just you know the difference in cost of packaging a kit and packaging a ready to run car is so so narrow at this point. It doesn't make a lot of sense to to put a lot of kits out there when people are you know they want to buy the ready to run. Right. Now, buildings would be different. The the laser cut building kits that the ones I've seen are just oh, phenomenal. Great. Especially you in the northeast. Uh, you know, Fuscale and uh God Mason and all mm-hmm. that. I mean these people put out just incredibly detailed yep. kits. Fine scales, miniatures and uh I haven't got to that stage yet, but speaking of Finally detailed. Good segue over to True Line Trains. And for the listeners, that's www.truelinetrains, and that's all one word, dot yeah, C-A. Or .com. They both will go to the same location now. Okay. And on the masthead of the the homepage, you know, it's True Line Trains, quality beyond compare. And you're going to see a slideshow of some of the product, uh, cabooses, slab side Covered hoppers, boxcars, steam, incredibly detailed. Let me just, let's just start it off. Tell me about the overall concept of what the company wants to do and has done, and then that'll give us a, a segue into what's in the future. Sure. But just tell us a little yeah, well, the company actually goes back, as I've said, I only kind of joined officially uh, this year, although I've been working with them for uh, a little over a year now. The company itself goes back uh, 
to the period before Walters purchased Lifelike, uh, when they were known as Lifelike of Canada. And so a lot of people are familiar with Lifelike of Canada, uh, but once Walters purchased Lifelike, they, they had to go a different direction, and TrueLine Trains was the new company that, or the new company name, I guess, that uh, they, they started operating under. They are owned by the same family or the same uh, person that uh, owns Hobbycraft Canada, which is, I believe, the largest distributor in Canada. The current owner, Darren, is the son of the uh, uh, the guy who owned the company back at that time period. So in that period, there were a number of models that were kind of joint releases by Lifelike of Canada and uh, Lifelike. And you know, so there's some models that were tooled by uh, Lifelike of Canada, like the uh, Fowler boxcars uh, that were released in the Proto 1000 line. Um, and that sort of thing. Uh, and the C-Liners, I think, they were also released. The U.S. roads for the four-axle models were released by Lifelike back then as well. Uh, once they became TrueLine trains, they, they kept a similar model to their uh, the, the offerings that they had. It, it was... It, they have three basic lines, or we have three basic lines, I should say, at this point. Uh, the red line is cars that were manufactured by other companies like Athern or Atlas that they would have decorated for Canadian roads uh, and, and release under the red line. We don't really have any plans for anything on the red line at this point. Uh, it still exists, but uh, for the most part, everything is, is our own releases um, and has been for some time. The gold line would be comparable to, like, the Proto 2000 line, where it's uh, highly detailed cars, uh, trying to be as accurate as possible and maintaining integrity with paint schemes uh, for roads that actually had that prototype or, or a very close prototype. Um, and that includes the freight cars as well as the diesel locomotives and all. And then the the third line is the Platinum line, which is really kind of similar to the Heritage line uh, that Lifelike had at the time uh, of steam locomotives. And so that's the Platinum line is exclusively the steam locomotives, uh, and of which there's the, the one, the U2G Northern, is the uh, the only model we've got out in that line right now. Uh, and so in those, there are actually some of that particular model left, and they've been discounted quite a bit from their original price, uh, if you can find them. I know um, they're they're available out there still uh, a little bit. Um, right now in the United States, we either sell direct to dealers or uh, they're available to dealers through Walthers. Uh, so they are available pretty much at any at any store uh, for ordering. But like everybody, these are all primarily pre-order based, limited runs. And once they sell out, we'll, you know, eventually do another run uh, as time permits uh, and the production schedule permits. I'm looking at a photo of the uh, into the cab of that northern, and good grief, I can see the 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 needles on the gauges. Yep, that that particular model was kind of going all out for every possible uh, feature that that you could have. So it comes with DCC sound, and there's a smoke unit in it that's timed with the, uh, the the sound as well and it's a it's a gorgeous model it really is the, you know chains uh, prototype specific details uh, for each road number um, there were a couple of tenders available at, you know, depending on the road number uh, in fact the tenders themselves the, the uh, Vanderbilt tenders uh, that were available for that are available separately now too um, I don't know how many of those would be available for the but primarily for the Canadian models if they're interested they uh, that is something that we have uh, that will be available shortly. Wow. I mean, it, it looks like real coal 
in the hop. Yeah, it's a, he had uh, when Darren tooled that. I think they did several different cool loads too. Wow. So so you got some variation in there, and it it really is the the paint job on it is is really really top notch. Um, the, the design itself is an interesting design. It's got, you know, the all of the cold weather gear, basically the whole enclosed cab and uh, uh, and with the, I don't remember what you call it on them, not being a Canadian modeler, what their terms are, but it's, uh, you know, the whole uh, tender pretty much attaches very closely to the locomotive and so the fireman wouldn't have to be out in the elements when shoveling coal. It's, it's pretty impressive. What's the body construction or material they use on that? It's it's uh, injection molded plastic. Oh, really? It's not a hybrid or anything like that. Okay. Nope, nope. I believe it's all uh, primarily plastic. I think there are portions. The cylinders are cast, um, and uh, but primarily it's a it's a injection molded. Okay. Very finely detailed model. All right. Any uh. All right. So that right now is all they've done in steam. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, looking at the, the cars and stuff I see there, it looks like, again, these are back into uh, like a transition era, 40s? Um, yeah, I would say most of them right now. Um, a couple of them, they, they, well, the slab side covered hoppers were built in the late transition. I think the original prototype was in 46, if I recall, um, but most of them were built in the 50s. So, yeah, it would be in the, you know, what, normally turn the transition era. Uh, the bulkhead flat cars were later than that, uh, but the rest of them, especially the stuff that's coming out right now, uh, the, the CP eight-hatch reefers uh, should be shipping from China in a couple of weeks, so they should be in the stores shortly. The next freight car that will be coming out is the CP mini box, which is a, a very unique and important prototype in boxcar construction. Uh, it was kind of almost a precursor to the 1932 ARA car um, with some of its features and that of course led to the, the 37 and its variations uh, in standardizing box cars. And then the Fowler box car, we are working on retooling that. Uh, there were some issues at the time. It primarily, was the underframe. It's not very, wasn't very highly detailed in the original model when it was released under the Proto 1000 name. So we're redoing that. The uh, simplex bolster trucks uh, had a bolster that was higher than normal, so they don't really fit well under other cars without modification. We're retooling the trucks to correct that and and just get some finer details, and we'll be looking at that. And I, I suspect that will be out next year. Um, CNH half reachers, which is just a variation, different uh, different ends, and it'll have the uh, the regular hinged door instead of the the plug door that the uh, CP reefers. Those will be out later this year, and they're still available at this point. We haven't uh, uh, finalized the production on those, so those are something that people can pre-order. Um, and that that's the bulk of the uh, the freight cars we have coming out at this point. I wouldn't be surprised if we do another run of the the 37 AAR cars. Those are unique Canadian prototypes. Um, the Canadian National and Canadian Pacific were, especially in the transition era, they were, I believe, it was either the second and third or third and fourth largest railroads in North America. And the 1937 AAR cars, they were the largest buyer of the, the 37 AAR standard car. They had several variations that were unique to the Canadian roads. All of the Canadian cars had things like stirrup attached, uh, ladder attached stirrup steps instead of them being attached to the car itself. Mm -hmm. They were uh, integral to the ladder. The CP cars, uh, a number of them had a 5.5 dreadnought end instead of the more standard 4.5 dreadnought end. 
that you'd have a ten on a ten foot interior height car, and the Canadian National ones, the ones that were built by uh, NSC, had one of three unique ends. Two of them are really the the ones that are unique, the first and second ones, which are they're kind of a standard dreadnought end, but then they also have vertical ribs that go along the end. Uh, that are, are quite unique, and we've done both variations of those. Uh, and then the Canadian roads were late to switch to the rectangular panel roof. I don't think they started installing that until the early 40s. So the initial runs of these cars had a flat panel roof similar to what you would have seen on an X-29 box car at the time. Okay. So unique variations, and there were a lot of them out there. So when they you know, like everything uh, at the time, well, and still today, the interchange rules were the same in Canada and all over North America. So these were, were very frequent visitors to pretty much everywhere in the United States. I mean, there's photographs of the eight hatch reefers in California, Texas, Florida, pretty much everywhere. Those are some very fine-looking uh, caboose models out there. And I mm-hmm. even see uh, some of those with the uh, CN noodle uh, scheme on them. So... They look like they're wood sheathed. Yep, yep. This was a wood sheathed prototype, um, and it, it was again kind of a unique Canadian prototype. Um, there were somewhat similar ones on some of their uh, kind of sister companies, like the Central Vermont, uh, and so they're available in those. But primarily, these are a, a Canadian prototype, uh, and we are planning on. I think it's. Uh, It'll be either late this year or maybe first quarter next year, the transfer cabooses, which were uh, a unique Canadian variation. It's it's a very similar caboose minus the cupola, basically. Okay. And those will be coming out, too. So I, when I look at one with, like, Central Vermont and so forth, that would fit in a period because I notice I'm seeing, yeah, friction-bearing trucks. Mm-hmm. And I know in the United States at ACF we were making – covered hoppers in the mid-60s still where you could spec uh, friction-bearing trucks on it. Yeah, well, and certainly on cabooses, um, you know, they they wouldn't swap trucks unless they needed to. Since they weren't an interchange, they could maintain those uh, just like work equipment. You know, they'll have all sorts of uh, older technologies uh, just because they didn't have to spend the money to change them out. Yeah, I mean, that's a that is one whale of a good-looking caboose there. Yeah, it really is a nice model. The steps came out beautifully, and uh, you know this was this was released prior to me coming on board. But it's just uh, it, the you know the, the tooling and stuff is amazing, and it's it's great you know to know the capabilities we have for the future cars we're working on, basically. Okay, and I do see a looks probably a prototype from the sense of a, a pre-production sample of your transfer caboose. Looks like that'll be mm-hmm. a fine yep. looking car, also. Yeah, it's a neat car. Okay, so now tell me about the uh, the Sea Liners because they're your upcoming releases, all U.S. roads. Yep, it was a model that was uh, the initial model was based on the Canadian Locomotive Works Sea Liner. Um, uh, Fairbanks Morse built it in the U.S. and, and CLC built it up in Canada, um, but these are. Uh, modified tooling for the U.S. roads, and uh, I think it's been about 10 years since this model was released. Uh, We're tooling the correct U.S. trucks, which were a little bit different from the Canadian ones, as well as uh, the correct grills, and on the Pennsylvania one, we'll have the the train phone antenna uh, and some extra parts and stuff that weren't available. Uh, because of the tooling and because it is 10-year-old tooling, there are some things that we can't easily modify, 
uh, but most of the things will be accurate. Uh, we have, some time ago, we had the five-axle sea liners out, and it's always a good possibility for the future as well. And being a New Haven modeler, I uh, am well familiar with, you know, a lot of the things that they uh, found as issues with that particular locomotive. And one of the ones that is interesting is the uh, the stacks and they're they're just in a different location on the Canadian locomotives, and because of the way it's tooled, you pretty much you you have to move them yourself if you want to move them. But uh, but a lot of the other details are very easy to uh, to modify, and and we're doing quite a bit on those. And those are the the Milwaukee, New York Central, and Pennsylvania uh, roads all had those locomotives. Uh, we'll have AB sets as well as uh, a separate A locomotive unit available. And I, I think they're going to be really big sellers at this point. You know, with the updated tooling, they're going to be really, really nice models. And certainly three of the biggest roads out there that uh, we're using that prototype. And they're a unique locomotive, too. Okay. And, you know, this relates to all your locomotives, I presume. But you guys, if you get DCC and sound, you do the ESU system? Uh, all of the current ones are, yes. We've had QSI in some of the earlier ones, but... Uh, Everything now is the uh, uh, ESU lock sound sound decoders, which I have only started putting decoders in my locomotives, and uh, they have one. They're, well, they're the only ones that I'm aware of that have a 44 tonner recording for the prime mover, uh, and then they've got a very small decoder, um, and so I've I put those in my 44 tonners, and uh, they're they're great decoders. They work really well. The sounds are really great, and uh, they're one of the decoders that are upgradable as they come up with new features and so on. You can get the uh, the programming device to hook it up to the computer and, and either upload new sounds or uh, upgrade the decoder itself when they have new features available for their line. So it's it, you know one of those very forward-looking companies with unique uh, decoders out there, and, and they work very, very well. We've been very happy with them. In fact, I have a, a modeling friend who is pretty much a, a diehard tsunami guy. I think pretty much every locomotive he has is tsunami sound. Um, but he was in the same boat, had a 44-tonner. Uh, and so he put uh, the decoder in one of mine, and I got him a decoder for his as well. And he's been very impressed and very happy with the uh, the way that decoder is, is running in uh, relationship to his otherwise tsunami fleet. Okay. Well, and, and there's some new personnel at... Uh... ESU on the U.S. operations, and uh, I've talked to some big size installers or yep. you know high volume installers, and they said, yeah, there's a, a lot of good things happening at ESU. So, yeah, I think they've suffered a little bit from the same issues that uh, you know that we have, being a, a I think they're a German company, they're European anyway. Yes. Um, yes. That it it. You really have to have something focused on the U.S. market to, because it's it's a different market, and to understand the way the market works a little better and, and all. And I've met Matt um, at ESU. He's, he's a great guy. Again, a fantastic modeler, and, and his knowledge of the uh, the decoders and capabilities, and you know the things coming down the pike that he's he's working on are are, are pretty impressive too. I mean. You know, it's interesting to uh, once you start looking at the capabilities. I mean, you got a little computer chip basically in here that lets you do anything you can come up with, provided you can program it to do it. And uh, so, really, really impressive stuff. 
Uh, okay, yeah, that'd be you probably talk about uh, Matt Herman over at ESU. Yeah, yeah, I think he's their uh, new GM. Okay, well that's great. So we've got some American prototypes coming out. Yep, uh, it is. All right, now, so for all of this transition period, you know, locked in somewhere between the 40s and the 60s. Then we come up, you know, and we've got your regular uh, range of, oh, Alco S, uh, RS, 18Us. We've got Fairbanks, Morris, uh, an EMD. And then we've got the the M36. Yep, the MP36 is well, like everything that we've got right now. They're they're all they all start with a Canadian prototype at this point, and we're certainly looking at some other options as we go on. But there's still a, there's still some some things to mine right now that we haven't covered yet. Um, you know, so like you said, there's there's kind of the Alco variations. The Canadian roads kind of did their own thing on a number of things. There's the uh, the SW12000 uh, or 12,000, 1200, which is a really unique switcher, uh, a little bit different from the variations that were on most of the U.S. roads. Although a number of U.S. short lines use that, um, but the MT Express locomotives are are yeah, very modern commuter locomotives, and um, the initial model we did was the MP40, uh, which is the Go Transit locomotive in Canada. And it's a it's a really I, I think it's a really great looking locomotive in general. I mean I'm you know a steam guy transition era basically. I love the the Alcos and all, but this is just a, a unique looking design. Um and the way the prototype was designed was to to give the roads, you know, some options based on their needs. And so uh, Go Transit uses the MP forties. Uh, but in the US they have these MP thirty eight thirty six variations and there's two primary variations based on uh, what they have, I think, primarily for the, uh, the steam generation for the passenger cars and so on. Um, uh, and, but they're they're very similar in sort of the the overall body shape and all, with variations on fans and, and some of the other details. Uh, and the MP36s are, depending on how soon this comes out, we we're right on the the end of the uh, the pre-order period here because we're we're pretty much uh, already ordering materials and all, but we can probably add on a few more uh, locomotives, uh, particularly the uh, the MP36s, which will be the last of the uh, the three that we're doing. But uh, they're they're just a unique locomotive and used primarily in commuter service. I think exclusively in commuter service all over the U.S. Uh, and the one in particular that I I think is worth mentioning here, and they're they're in Boston, they're in D.C. and Virginia, um, Chicago area, Los Angeles, and so on. They're they're you know pretty much across the country. Uh, also in New Mexico and Utah, they're in use there. Uh, but one in particular, which uh, we'll be putting some more information on the site, was this one for the metro system in the Chicago area. Uh-huh. There was a, a I guess it was a number of years ago uh, when this locomotive was uh, put in production, I think around 2005, if I recall. There was a, a six-year-old boy, Oliver Ollie Tibbles, uh, who loved trains. The reason his story you know, became known, and I think there's a book coming out about it as well, uh, is at, at that time period he came down with or was diagnosed with brain and spinal cancer, I think it was. And what he said was that he wanted to be a train. 
and the, you know, people would ask him, "Oh, you want to you want to drive a train?" He's like, "No, I want to be a train." You know, I'm not, I'm not going to drive a train. I want to be a train. Okay. And the Make a Wish Foundation set up an opportunity for a whole cab ride and and stuff on the metro system. And I get it was a really big deal at the time. They they had a the whole town kind of had a whole celebration when they got into town uh, on the train, and you know, they had all sorts of things for him just you know to really to. Uh, you know, foster to his love of trains and so on. And so he he died when he was seven. And uh, when Make-A-Wish Foundation found out that Metra had these new locomotives on order, they went to Metra and uh, they got them to basically uh, designate these locomotives. It was uh, number 401 uh, is the one I think we're doing. And so it's it's the, the Metra MP36 Oliver Ollie Tribbles locomotive. And it's, it's right on the locomotive. It's running out there in Chicago now. Uh, and, it, and it was just a really neat story that they've done that. So uh, and it, I think it really touched Darren a lot. He's what he's doing with this locomotive now is we've got this available, both as uh, the model, but also as a static model uh, without uh, a chassis, without a motor, and so on in it uh, for people who would like one just to to display on a shelf or something. And all of the profits for the static model, as well as a portion of the profits for that particular locomotive, the Ali Tribble uh, number 401, are going to Make-A-Wish Foundation. So it's it's kind of a neat it's a neat story and a neat locomotive, and it's it's neat to see. I, I, I guess it's one of the things that I just have always loved about railroading and, and model railroading are the people, and it's just you know it's kind of a sign of of uh, uh, the big hearts that the the people in in both the real and the uh, the modeling industry have. So it's kind of a neat model. Now help me out here. Isn't this uh, the company that makes this? Isn't that the old Morrison Knudsen? What used to be Morrison Knudsen? The prototype, you mean? You you may be right. MPI is the name of the company now. Motive Power Industries, but I saw some on TV and I thought, well, wow, that reminds me of the old Morrison Knudsen. Yeah, it very well could be. Um, I, I will, you know, readily admit that my knowledge of more current railroading is not nearly as as uh, deep as what I know about. The little space of the New Haven I'm modeling, but uh, <laughs> I, I think you are because a lot of these companies have, you know, over time they've, you know, through mergers or uh, so on have have uh, right certainly diversified. Yep. Okay, so are you going to make any of these undecorated? Um, yeah, I believe the um, MP36 will be available undecorated. The MP40 was. We we kind of look at it on a case by case basis, but we've covered in this case all of the existing paint schemes and, and really there's pretty much one for each of them that I'm aware of because they're all so new on the on the rails at this point. There are some that are on order for railroads that we don't have covered yet for future runs. And one of the things that is important is that we pretty much commit to not rerunning a particular road number, at least in a, in a given paint scheme. Uh, and I don't think this applies to any of these particulars because I think there's more than a a couple road numbers for each of these roads, but you know, every once in a while, I come up on a, a model where there's you know one or two of a very specific prototype, and that's the time to grab it because we probably will not run it again in that paint scheme with that road number. Well, these things are beautifully detailed: cut levers, the the rooftop of the hatches, the way <laughs> the delicate sand lines and stuff down on the trucks. Oh, some Brick chain. some nice tooling work there. Yeah, they, they he does um, amazing uh, work with this, and uh, one of the other guys in the company, Mark, uh, is an absolutely phenomenal modeler. So you get a good starting point with uh, 
you know, some of the mock-ups and all that he's able to build to, to really see how we might go about tooling something to to make it usable. But yeah, they, they you know, they, the standards are pretty high nowadays uh, for what's out there. So we, we want to meet those standards or, or do better than those standards where we can. Okay. Oh, beautiful locomotive. I see that you market your paints also. Yes. Yep, that's a series of airbrush-ready paints uh, of specifically of Canadian road colors because there's quite a bit of a gap there since most of the companies were U.S. companies making the, the paint. But many are of use, of course, for everybody. And certainly, you know, when modeling the the, uh, the more modern equipment, there's a lot of, you know, over over the many decades, the CP and uh, CN in particular, uh, but also some of the smaller Canadian roads have had quite a few colorful paint schemes you know, unique colors. So it's it's nice to be able to have them available and they're they're 100% acrylic, acrylic and and airbrush ready. So uh, they're they're a really nice line of paints. All right. Then of course you've got some incredible looking trucks including some express reefer trucks. Yep, those are coming out with the uh, the first run of reefers here. So those will be coming. I believe they're shipping the same time as the CP reefers. Uh that's a new truck. The other trucks go back to, you know, the many models, the the current uh, AR car with the simplex bolsters is still there. That'll be replaced once we have the retooled version available. Uh, but you know, pretty much the the trucks that that are used on on any of the cars are available separately. So they're your standard uh, AAR cast side frame trucks with leaf or coil springs, uh, as well as the Barber 70 ton roller bearing that was used on the. Uh, I believe that was on both. Did we have that on some of the? Might have had that on some of the uh, slab side hoppers, and it was on the uh, the flat car. Okay, and you've, you have wheel sets now. I I presume these are all metal wheel sets, yep. right? Metal wheel sets. They're cast, so they have the uh, the lettering, the raised lettering on the wheels, so on. Um, I think, and again, I think that actually just goes back to that old partnership with Lifelink, because I believe they have uh, a similar line of trucks with the uh, the cast lettering, which is pretty unique. I mean, it. it you know, it's like one of those little details that, you know, until somebody points it out, you might not even notice it's there. But once it is, every time you see a real train going by, you spot, oh, look at that. There's a, yep. <laughs> you, know, you see those little details. Because on the photo, it shows the uh, cast in lettering. I was trying to see what it said. But. Yeah, one of one of the funny kind of jokes that uh, some of my modeling friends and I always have is that, you know, when we're doing research, it's like the more you know, the less you can model because you start finding all these things. And once you know about it, you can't. Get it out of your head, you know. It's like, oh, you know, I gotta, I gotta add that to it, or I've gotta change this, and uh, it, it, it's interesting because you, you start to pick up on things like that. Yeah, I, <laughs> that's so true. I try not to let that slow me down. Yep. Uh, what do, what do you guys uh, have coming out in the future that you can share with us? Uh, well, most of it is just that that production schedule. A lot of these have been. Uh, in the works for quite a while, uh, there's the, the standard issues that, that I think most of the manufacturers are dealing with in China with the factories. Um, I have heard that, like, in the last couple of months, there was, uh, I think, another factory that had closed down or something. Um, I, I'm not, you haven't been impacted by that, have you? I'm sorry? You have not been impacted. Um, yeah, because it affects the production schedules for everybody, basically, with fewer uh, factories available and uh, a smaller base of skilled, you know, factory workers, it's a very specialized industry. So, you know, it's something that, that 
people can learn, but you know it's great to have people with the experience that have done these when you when you want to tool a new model you know with with some special features or details or you know something that's kind of unique it, it, you they have a lot of expertise to help figure out how to do it and do it economically and I think you lose some of that when these factories are closing um i Sure, you're familiar with Rapido trains, and one of Jason's recent, I think it was his last newsletter that went out, gave an, a, a wonderful overview of, you know, kind of the process in the factory that it goes through to, to build a model nowadays. And it's it's fascinating, but I think a lot of people don't really quite realize how much goes into this. And, you know, there's a number of, you know, the people in the industry, when, you, when you're when you on the online forums and stuff and you know, people will pipe up with various comments or questions and stuff. And, and once the, the kind of the, especially the people who've been around for a long time jump in on the conversation, you know, there's a lot that you can learn and see out there. And it, it, it's not necessarily a really complex industry, but, you know, these are very finely detailed models that, that all the companies are coming out with nowadays. And, and to try and get that detail uh, is is difficult at times. And so, yeah, I think the factories have had a really big impact on that, certainly on our production schedules and being able to to slot into where they have a space open for us to uh, to get our stuff cast and, and produced and all. Okay, so you do 100% in China? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right now it's all tooled in China. The design work, obviously, is largely done over here, but there's always a – it's a – collaborative effort with, you know, the, the, the folks over there that know their equipment and and what their equipment is capable of doing and and finding good ways to do it. Okay. Well, one of the last things in looking, because you've got a line of buildings coming out, right? Yeah, it's a company called Cancar, um, which is another former Canadian name um, that uh, it, it will have these. And Right now, they're only being distributed exclusively by uh, Hobbycraft Direct, but uh, TrueLine being a you know a, a, another company tied to, to Hobbycraft in the U.S. Uh, will have them there. Unfortunately, right now we won't have them available to dealers and all because of the arrangements on distribution. But they are going to be. It looks to be it'll be a fun uh, line of buildings and some more Canadian-based structures. Uh, again. Most of these companies, I mean, it's like Walters, the Cornerstone series in particular started with a lot of things around the Milwaukee area because that's where they were. You know, the fine scale miniatures, um, you know, George Salius being up in the, in Massachusetts, he had a lot of New England style and based models and so on. And so you kind of get these regional approaches to doing the structures. Branch Line, of course, uh, had a lot of New England type things being an East Hartford company as well. Uh, and and then they're also usually reflective of the owner's particular uh, you know likes and and what they want for their own layouts and modeling efforts. So uh, this will give uh, modelers, particularly up north, a, a lot more options for Canadian-based you know architecture and all. Yeah, I see one of them, Randy's Gentleman's Club. <laughs> uh, that's uh, Darren's got a good sense of humor here, so <laughs> he's I. I haven't seen the uh, the whole details, but uh, yeah, that's one he's he's adding on there. Dan's another friend of his, uh, and so he gets the donut shop. And you know, some some of these, if I, I my understanding is that a, a few of the the prototypes are things where they're recognizable. I'm sure that over the years you've seen some of the models that have come out from various companies for 
you know, U.S. companies where, I don't know, there's like Dairy King, which is very, very strongly influenced by a, a, a you know, a, a more prototypical <laughs> location, but because of licensing and stuff like that, there's, uh, you know, you got to come up with different different names and stuff for things, so. Well, I just, you know, thought Randy's Gentleman Club was along the line. You know, you've got BLMA putting out porta pots yep. and even has some uh, figures of people mooning. Yep, yep. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff. Well, there definitely, there's always been a lot of that in the hobby, and, you know, it, the, the railroad didn't always run through the, the prettiest part of town, right? So, you know, these, these are the types of things that are, are close to the tracks, and, uh, you know, it's, if you're going to model a railroad, you gotta you got to model what's around it. So, Okay, well, I certainly appreciate your time, Randy, that you've uh, given us uh, today. Appreciate all the insight into both what you're doing on your on your layout. It's nice to know other people deal with the same trials and tribulations that you do when you're building. And then appreciate the information on Treeline Trains. Yep, absolutely. It's a, I'm I'm having a blast. You know, it's a, it's a new it's almost a new hobby for me, right? <laughs> Taking on getting into the industrial uh, the industry side of things and. Uh, but it's it's really a lot of fun because I think there's there's still a lot of good options and opportunities for good models out there and you know the main thing is is letting people know that they're available and so like I said I would have them go to their dealers they're certainly welcome on the website there's plenty of links to me uh, so they can email me uh, if they're looking for something and they can't find it I will do everything I can to help them find a dealer that. Uh, has what they're looking for, or a dealer where they can pre-order it as well. Okay. Golly, can't ask for more than that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that wraps us up today, people. hope you've enjoyed the show, and stay tuned for the next Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. Mm-hmm.